The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So for our non-residential retreat this week, um, and this day is the beginning for those of you um, who are interested this day serves as the, the springboard, as the beginning for uh, a week of practice together to support our integration of mindfulness into our everyday activities, into talking, into working, into grocery shopping, and into just being around our, our families and our homes. So this is, is really the tools I'll be offering are to support that, to support that kind of mindfulness. We will, during the week, explore some about um, sitting meditation and how certain aspects of sitting meditation can be supportive to us in our daily life. But really the emphasis here is on practices, tools to support us to integrate the, uh, the mindfulness right into our day. So the, um, this day is a kind of standalone. If you, um, if you can't come during the week, that's fine. Um, I, li- I like for this particular retreat to make this retreat as available as possible for people. And so I do ask, those of you who are here probably know, um, that I do ask if you want to attend during the week, that you attend today's um, session and that... Um, after having attended today's session, to make it workable for as many people as possible, you're welcome to attend the week, the, the sessions during the week as it works for you. And so I will be here from 7.30 to 9 a.m. and 7.30 to 9 p.m. each day. And the, the format of that time will largely be, well, we'll sit together and then we'll largely... Um, talk about. It'll be very responsive to what's happening for you. And so I'll ask you for some um, reflections, what's happening for you in your daily life, any questions. And so the, the format will be very, very much a, a discussion kind of uh, format for most of the mor- for all of the mornings and most of the evenings. The Monday and Thursday evening will be integrated with the regular Dharma talk um, for that evening. So I'll give the talk those evenings on a topic that's related to uh, to the practices this week, um, but in those evenings we won't have the as much of the um, the, the group sharing the the sharing, and so um, in terms of the uh, the recording, we do ask that you speak into the mics when you share. Today will be I'll record the entire thing, including your shares, and so just know that um, that the that the recording today will include. Uh, anything that you say in the room. Uh, for the rest of the week, what I've seen works best um, during the, the the sharing in the in the morning sessions and in those evening sessions. I will not record what you share, um, but I will uh, potentially at times be controlling the recording from this device and and um, turning it on when I have something that I feel like is more generally useful. And so some of the, the, the recordings for the morning and evening, uh, sometimes people ask about, are these things recorded? And pieces of them will be recorded. When I remember uh, before I get ready to say something or think, oh, this would be, I'm getting ready to say something for about five or ten minutes, this would be useful to record, then I'll put the recording on. Um, so there'll be little like snippets of darmets 
of things that I have offered. Um, because what happens in these, in these daily life practice meetings is that people will bring something up. And because our minds are so remarkably similar, then I often find that something somebody has said points to a bigger kind of learning or teaching that's useful for the whole group that connects to something the Buddha taught or something that I've learned in my own practice that's useful in practice in daily life. And so um, that's part of what the, the shares will include is, is some of my learnings and my understandings of the Buddha's teachings. So those little dharmets will be available um, on the recording. Um, how many of you are planning to attend the retreat this week, to come during the week? Great. That's a good, a good number. I'm glad to see that. Um, so, um, and again, you're welcome to come as it works for your schedule. But what I would say is if it is possible for you, um, you know, some people can only come during the mornings or only come during the evenings, but come as much as you can. Um, there are sometimes some people who are able to come for the entire thing, come both mornings and evenings. And something about the structure of committing to being here morning and evening. And for me, it definitely feels like a retreat. I mean, my, my schedule becomes more retreat-like. I'm getting up earlier. I'm sitting uh, with the group and uh, offering teachings more. And so the it feels like a retreat. And people who have uh, attended as much as they can and people who have attended the entire thing have uh, described that that it feels like a retreat. Especially if you let yourself simplify during the week, letting go of anything extraneous, which helps actually with participating during the week to, to let go of, you know, some things you might normally do, like, um, I don't know, uh, reading the newspaper in the morning or listening to the radio on the way in or, you know, some, some things like that. Just simplifying your life to support a more settled and um, uh, a more settled mind, a less distracted mind. So those are just a few things about the schedule and um, the, the, really it is a sangha practice that we're doing here. Those of you who attend during the, the week, I think, will find the support of hearing um, what other people are exploring in their daily lives. In this community, we often the form, um, except for some of the like the Dharma practice days and things like that. Many of the the for, much of the form here is about looking inward and exploring our own experience. And there's occasionally time for question and answer. But this retreat will have an extended period of time for sharing. And what what I think we really see is how similar our minds are and how helpful it is to hear how other people are exploring and working. So it really becomes a community that, that, that supports each other in our practice. And so that's a piece of our, of our practice this week is, is the community, uh, the cultivation of this community of people practicing together. So this is a retreat for those of you who are going to be participating during the week. And then on the weekend, next weekend, we have a day long um, that will come together and I'll be teaching... Um, That'll be a more in-silence day long. Um, I'll be teaching a form of sitting meditation and walking meditation that is very 
aligned with daily life practice that I learned from my teacher in Burma, Sayadaw Utejaniya. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very receptive, less focused kind of practice. So we're not aiming to uh, settle the mind just on the breath. We're looking at, can we just be aware of what's happening in our experience? And this is what we need to cultivate for mindfulness in daily life is a broader kind of mindfulness that can be more receptive and, and just recognizing, oh, this is what's happening right now. Can I be aware of that? As opposed to feeling like mindfulness means choosing what to pay attention to. So that's the form of practice I'll be offering on Saturday. So this being a retreat, uh, I do like to start um, just to kind of remind us all of the, the kind of the purpose of the... Of the um, to point us to a commitment to practicing together. And there's a way on residential retreats that we begin with um, taking the refuges and precepts. And the refuges and precepts are a kind of reminder for us about how we're committing to practice together, what our orientation is, and this uh, commitment to non-harming. So the, um, the refuges are... Uh, three in in our tradition, refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha, and the word refuge itself means safety, means to a place for security, for safety, and you know our usual ways of looking for safety in the world, and we'll we'll really see this during the week. Where do we look for safety? Where do we try to land and say this is where I'm going to be? safe. This is where I'm going to be secure. And largely where we have habitually looked for safety is on unreliable things, on unreliable kinds of situations. We, we look for safety on things that tend to be impermanent and unreliable. And so the, the Buddha in his own quest began to look for, is there a more reliable kind of happiness? Is there a more reliable kind of of place to land and he found that in um, the truth of the Dharma the uh, the understanding around how we relate to experience um, you know we could say that our struggle our suffering is um, and that is what the Buddha's quest was can is it possible to be free from struggle stress suffering in our lives and he found that, yes, it is possible to be free from the kind of suffering that we add in our experience, which happens to be almost all of it. There is some degree of unpleasant experience that happens for us. But the, the, the most of our experience of suffering has to do with the fact that we um, both want to hold on to things that are pleasant and want to get rid of things that are unpleasant. And so a lot of our suffering, or most of our suffering, has to do with that relationship. And the Buddha explored and taught that um, the reason that, that that relationship creates suffering, the reason that we suffer when we try to push away unpleasant and hold on to pleasant, is because of the inherent unreliability of what we are trying to navigate, of how we are trying to navigate, how we're trying to find happiness in our lives. 
We're trying to find happiness by landing on, you know, creating more pleasant experience in our lives by holding on to pleasant, getting rid of unpleasant. And so that very um, unreliability uh, that we kind of aim in our lives to hold on around unreliable experience, that is what the Buddha said is, a, is, our, is, is our problem. That, he said, is the, the illness that we have, that we don't understand at a deep level. At some level we understand that trying to hold on to impermanent things is not a, a very valid way to find a lasting happiness. And yet, very deeply ingrained in our organism is this kind of movement to have pleasure, to get rid of, to get rid of pain. And it's not a, a bad thing but it is this, uh, this orientation around the, the neediness, the kind of the craving around that, and the delusion that, oh, if I just get this thing, then I'll be happy. That is where the, the confusion lies. And so um, the Buddha found for himself this, this understanding and pointed out to us that it is possible. He said, I saw this in my own mind and in this exploration, freeing my mind from this, these habitual ways of craving and clinging, there is a deeper kind of happiness and peace available. And so that is the Dharma, this truth of this deeper kind of happiness that's available. And that, I would say, is the basic refuge that we we take refuge in. We don't take refuge in things that are impermanent and unreliable. We take refuge in an understanding of truth that helps our mind to uh, reorient around how it engages in the world. And the the refuge in, so that's the refuge in the Dharma. And the refuge in the Buddha is is kind of an appreciation that the Buddha discovered this. Discovered both this truth and uh, discovered a way to articulate his understanding and offer it to us. Um, that's another um, meaning for the Dharma in terms of refuge in the Dharma. Basically, the refuge is in this truth of this understanding, but these teachings, these practices, the Dharma of the Buddha, are tools that help us to understand that truth of the Dharma. And so the, the Buddha, we, we take refuge in the Buddha as, a, as both as a person who kind of found this path, discovered this, rediscovered this path, really. Um, he doesn't claim to have invented it. He claims to, he says, I found this path that was overgrown and I kind of cleared out the weeds and walked this path and it leads to deep freedom. And so he, he offered that to us So we appreciate, in this refuge in the Buddha, we appreciate that he found this path, rediscovered this path, and we also appreciate the fact of his humanity that this is possible. It was possible for him to change his mind so deeply that a different kind of happiness was possible for him. And he basically says, it is possible for you too. You are also a human being. This is possible for human beings to do. And so we take refuge in, in the kind of the way that we can, as human beings, follow the same path that he walked as a human being.
So that's the refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma. And then in the Sangha, there's an understanding. Uh, you know, in some ways, the Buddha, the Buddha found this path on his own. Um, well, not completely on his own because he did, um, you know, train with teachers of his day, but they didn't point him to this particular understanding around the cause, the deeper, like, way the structures in our minds that put our suffering together. They taught him how to meditate. They taught him how to settle his mind. Um, but then this this particular understanding around how ignorance and craving are the main reasons why we um, suffer, that is his unique contribution. And so while he found it on his own, most of us, most of us need help to um, have this kind of very radical shift of perspective articulated to us. This shift of perspective around, yeah, this, this way that you've thought happiness was going to happen by getting what you want, getting rid of what you don't want, that's actually keeping you trapped on a cycle of more and more suffering. That is just not obvious to us. It's a subtle teaching. It's a profound understanding that most of us need support to touch and to trust. To see other people that have walked this path and have found some measure of freedom themselves. For me, this has been very inspiring. I did not really get the teaching when I read about it. I felt like, wow, I have no idea how this will work. But my friend there, she said it was really helpful for her, so I'm willing to try. I'm willing to see what will happen for me. So the, this is a way in which we take refuge in the Sangha. We borrow the confidence of others. We learn the teachings from others to support our own journey. It's like that path analogy, you know, the Eightfold Path analogy. The, the analogy of a path. And what the Buddha said, he used the path analogy when he talked about finding his way to this freedom. He said, I found an overgrown path that hadn't been walked for many years. And I, you know, cleared out, cleared it out. And for us, we are following the footsteps of many, many, many people who have walked this path. And when we think about paths in the wilderness... Paths that many people have walked are much easier to follow. There's, there's the, it's very clearly marked when somebody has walked someplace and somebody else has walked there and somebody else. It gets much more open and available to follow. And that's what we're doing. And that is refuge in the Sangha. That we take refuge in the support that others offered. Not just the people here, and that is also a support. The, the kind of the conversations that we'll have the, um, the kind of the direct exchanges that we'll have will be a direct support of, of Sangha. But there's also the support of the history of the lineage that is the Sangha that we um, kind of appreciate. And that's what the taking refuge is. It's a, it's a kind of an acknowledgement of, yes, this is a way I want to direct my life and I appreciate that the Buddha discovered this. I can find a support in remembering these teachings and support from the community. So that's the refuges and exploring this as our kind of community practice together.
We are coming together to practice the teachings taught by the Buddha in community. Right there, that's all three refuges. And then the, uh, the other aspect of the, um, the beginning ritual and retreat is to take the five precepts. And this is a commitment to ethical conduct. And I would say this is a big piece of practice in daily life. And so we'll just do this kind of briefly now, but it is an important part of daily life practice to commit to non-harming, to acknowledge there are ways in which we tend to uh, kind of want to um, or just out of wanting to hurry or do something that we, we tend to engage in things that can be harmful. And so we explore that as a practice to take up a commitment to refraining from killing living beings, to refraining from taking what is not given, to refrain from um, creating harm through our sexuality, to refrain from false speech, and to refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So these five are kind of the, the five precepts that are kind of the ground of ethical conduct and they're 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 really I like to think of them as trainings and as guidelines for us to support if we if we want to let go of the ways in which we create suffering in our own system in our own hearts and minds we have to acknowledge that if we're creating suffering in other people if we're, if we're engaging in ways that um, in relationship create harm, that that will rebound on us and that if we want to um, become free of suffering in our own system, we have to also commit to not adding suffering to the world. And so these, these five precepts are a, a kind of training ground And I like to think of them almost as mindfulness bells, that if you see yourself starting to engage in one of them, it's like if we commit to these precepts and you see yourself getting ready to kill a spider on the wall or um, just wipe those ants off the counter with a sponge, maybe you can reflect on this possibility of refraining from killing. Now, this is, uh, this is a, a kind of a, a training. It's an exploration. I would say that um, um, probably most of us are not going to be killing other human beings. And that's a big part of this uh, ethical precept to refrain from killing human beings. Um, and so one thing we can appreciate is that we're not doing that. That there is that ground of ethical conduct. And then the other areas around not killing insects, not killing other beings. Um, You know, this part is a part to explore as a training. And I have taken this on for myself in a way that is is pretty strong um, to uh, like capture the spiders and put them outside, to to do the same with the ants, you know, to, to, to not... Uh, to not do this intentionally. And this is an important piece of the precepts that we are refraining from intentionally killing, intentionally um, taking what's not given. 
intentionally creating harm through sexuality. And yet the, the exploration is around reflecting. It, did this create harm? You know, even if we didn't intend to create harm, did it create harm? As a way to, to learn, as a kind of a feedback loop. And so, um, you know, we might, um, we might find that something that we engage with, with, um, with a friend, we say something that, um, that hurts them. And this is beyond the precept, perhaps, of, of refraining from false speech. But maybe we say something that creates a, um, some pain in the other person. That's a place to, to reflect, okay, this wasn't my intention to create that pain, to add that suffering to the world, but what can I learn? Maybe there was something I didn't understand. And so in this way, we can use the precepts and we can use these ethical guidelines to help us learn and to um, deepen our understanding about ways in which we might not be aware of things. So I, I don't think of these um, as moralistic statements uh, for myself. The, they sound very like they sound very like the Ten Commandments: "Thou shalt not." The framing of the precepts are along the lines of: I undertake the training to refrain from g- killing living beings. So we think of it as a training, and we think of it also as a very practical suggestion that if we want to free our hearts from craving and clinging, to free our hearts from greed and aversion and delusion, these five things are ways in which probably, if we're engaged in them, greed, aversion, or delusion are underneath. And so it's a, it's a way that we can um, begin to recognize that these actions are kind of warning bells for us. Pay attention. There's something happening in terms of uh, greed, aversion, confusion in your own mind that needs to be seen. And so I think of them in this way as training rules, as very practical guidelines that support us in our journey towards freedom, towards letting go, towards uh, an understanding of how greed, aversion, and delusion have been so uh, embedded in our way of relating to people. So to take these, um, we'll chant together. Um, and we'll do this in call and response. Uh, the, the, the refuges we'll do in Pali. How many of you have not, or how many of you have done the refuges in Pali before? Okay, so a few of you. So we will do it call and response so that those of you who have not done it before can, can follow along. And if it's still too fast, you can just kind of take it in. Um, and then the precepts we'll do in English. Uh, and again, I'll do each of those a line at a time and we'll uh, do it call and response. So the refuges we begin, the first line is a kind of a, an appreciation of the Buddha, an honoring of the Buddha who found this path, who uh, awakened and offered these teachings to us. So that's the first line, and we'll do that three times. And then we will take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And then the the second time, we'll take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And then the third time, we'll take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So the, um, the, the the first time... 
budang saranang gachami, that's the phrase, I take refuge in the Buddha, budang, Buddha, saranang, refuge, gachami, walk towards. Um, And then we'll do that for the Dharma and the Sangha. And then the second time we'll add for the second time, dutiampi, the word in Pali that means for the second time. And then the third time we'll add the word tatiampi, which means for the third time. So we'll do this in um, call and response. Namo tasa, namo tasa, bhagavato, bhagavato, arahato, arahato, samma sambuddhasa, samma sambuddhasa. I'm going to try to pitch my voice a little higher for you. <laughs> for the second and third. Namo tasa, namo tasa, bhagavato. Bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato, Sama, Sambuddhasa, Sama, Sambuddhasa, Namo Tassa, Namo Tassa, Bhagavato, Bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato, Sama, Sambuddhasa, Sama, Sambuddhasa, Buddhang, Saranangachami. Budang Saranangga Chami, Damang Saranangga Chami, Damang Saranangga Chami, Sangang Saranangga Chami, Sangang Saranangga Chami, Dutiampi Budang Saranangga Chami. Dutiampi Budang Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Damang Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Damang Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Sangang Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Sangang Saranangga Chami Tatiampi Budang Saranangga Chami Tatiampi Budang Saranangga Chami Tatiampi Damang Saranangga Chami Tatiampi Damang Saranangga Chami Tatiampi Sangang Saranangga Chami Tatiampi Sangang Saranangga Chami For the purposes of training, I undertake the precept to refrain from killing living beings. For the purpose of training, I I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. For the purpose of training, I undertake the precept to refrain from from causing harm through sexuality. For the purpose of training, I undertake the precept to refrain from false speech. I undertake the precept for the purpose of training. I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants. 
which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. Thank you for engaging with these refuges and precepts. So, um, what we'll do next is give your bodies a little bit of movement, uh, take a walk. Um, and I won't want to speak for a little bit about the, an alternative walking practice, basically. Um, because as I said earlier, the, um, you know, the ways in which we do walking practice on retreat often is very focused, much like when we sit in meditation and we're focusing on our breath, that that kind of practice may not translate into daily life. The very focused meditation in walking that we do, you know, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, that's not going to fly in the grocery store. So... Um, Uh, I want to offer a different form of walking practice that's much more normal activity, kind of normal walking. And it's an excellent daily life practice. We spend a lot of our time in our day actually walking around, even for little short stretches. You know, we get up from our desk and walk to the bathroom, or we go to the copier, or we walk between our car and the building. Um, We're walking in the grocery store. We walk around our place of work. So there's all kinds of times in which we uh, are walking. And often in our day, you know, when we get up to walk often when we're working, there's something that we're going to do. And so very often we're kind of launching out of our chair and thinking about the thing that we're going to be doing. And uh, we don't remember, oh, this is an opportunity for mindfulness. So um, I want to support you in... um, learning how to be mindful at a more quick pace, at a more quick, normal kind of walking pace. And I think you'll find if you do this at times where, and you know, work is probably one of the hardest times um, when you're in between activities at work. Um, and yet, if you practice it in your house, as you're going to the grocery store, as you um, are you know, just in places, if you kind of pick places to say, okay, this is going to be this walking between the door and the car, that's going to be a walking path. If you pick places like that, then the, the practice of mindfulness will begin to become more available and more familiar to you during walking. And it might begin to happen, at least what I've seen happening, is when I commit to doing that, at regular times in certain parts of my day, it like starts to spill over into other parts of my day. So at one point, I, I committed to, um, whenever I got up from my desk to go to the bathroom, that was going to be my walking path. And actually, I took it to the entire time in the bathroom, that that was going to be a time that I would, I would be mindful And um, I decided to let go of my work thoughts during that time and just uh, be present for walking. And I discovered, actually, it was hard. It was hard to remember. (laughs) And there was a lot of belief in the mind that I needed to hold on to my work while I was doing this to kind of be thinking about the next thing I'd be doing when I got back to my desk. And yet when I began this and started shifting and committed to... um, letting go of all of that and just being present for 
walking. And I had a lovely little garden that I had to walk through. I was a, it was a kind of a community building and there was a lovely little garden that I had to walk to, through. So I had to go outside to get to the bathroom and then, uh, you know, just everything that I did and washing my hands, the warm water, all of that. You know, it's like, actually, there's a lot of pleasant here. And, you know, that two to three minutes of time in going to the bathroom. When I got back to my desk, I found that it hadn't been a problem to let go of the work thoughts. But actually, it had been supportive. My mind felt like it had a little three-minute vacation, a little three-minute break from the intensity of the mind being just wound in. And so if you pick some times during the day to commit to or to, to use this practice, to use this kind of exploration... I think it will support you in general in your daily life because there's so much walking that happens. And so if we can kind of uh, attune or have the walking be a place where we remember to be mindful, that will help us to be mindful more because it begins to kind of wake us up in the walking. So uh, what I want to um, um, suggest is a very simple form. Uh, I'll, I'll offer two things. One, just a ver- first, a very simple form of walking where you, you first start by just exploring, can I have ease while walking? Can I feel find my way to walking and feel comfortable while walking? So some of this involves exploring the pace, how quickly you're walking. So you can experiment with that on the walk that we'll get ready to do in just a few minutes. Experiment with how fast you're walking and notice how it affects you. Does it make you feel more relaxed? Does it make you feel more tense? Pay attention to how the pace affects you. And that's some mindfulness right there. You're noticing how an action affects you in the present moment. So that's the place to begin is finding a pace that feels comfortable, that feels easeful. And then, um, you know, just in a very simple way, you can just start to be mindful that you're walking. My teacher, Sayadaw Utejaniya, when asked, how do you practice walking meditation? He said, "Um, I don't practice walking meditation. I practice being aware while I'm walking. And so it kind of flips it around. It's not that we're trying to do anything particular in walking meditation other than just notice what it kind of feels like. How does it feel for the body to be walking? You probably notice some seeing and hearing. So this is a very open way of practicing walking meditation. And yet this, this also can be a challenge if you've not done this kind of very open practice. Um, it's very easy for the mind to wander. So when you notice that, when you notice the mind has wandered, come back, check in again about tension and ease. Does it feel comfortable walking at this point? Let yourself start there again. Just come back to, can I find a pace that feels comfortable while walking? And reconnect to being aware while walking. Again, this is a, this is a, a challenging thing if you've not explored it much before. And so there's another uh, practice that we can add for times that we're doing more formal walking meditation um, in this more open style. And that is to include a, a rotation, a kind of conscious checking in to four areas of experience. Seeing, hearing, 
physical movement of the body and feet touching the ground. And so this also brings in more than would typically come in during a very focused walking practice where we'd just be focusing on the experience of the feet, for example, and not so much paying attention to seeing and hearing. This includes and incorporates a broader range of experience right into the the mindfulness practice. And so the way I explore these four areas is to um, start start with the pace of ease and then uh, start with seeing. Just let the mind open and attune to seeing is happening. Just noticing, okay, yep, I know that I'm seeing. And it can be either that you're looking at things or that you're just kind of taking things in like, like, a, a, like a camera going through a scene. You, know, it doesn't, you don't have to be focused, but you also don't have to be not focused. So just notice that you're seeing, that seeing is happening for some seconds. Might be about five paces, five, ten seconds, seeing is happening. And then shift to hearing. Just let the attention shift to taking in the sounds, the ambient sounds. And again, it can just be kind of, you know, hearing what's coming to the eardrum. Might be listening if you hear like the airplane, for instance. You know, the attention might kind of attune or attend to that sound for a little while. That's fine. Just take five or ten seconds to let the attention rest with that field of experience for a few moments. Then shift to the physicality of walking. That might be just the kind of general sense of movement in the body. There's a kind of a, you know, uh, there is an experience of of movement that's pretty subtle, but um, you can kind of just notice the the movement of legs, the movement of arms, uh, maybe just a swaying of your body, that kind of thing. Just, Just take a few moments to check into the physicality of walking of the whole body. And then to ground a little bit, you know, something a little more familiar and easy, just a few moments of just touching, contact, 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 contact. So with each of these areas, and then rotate back, seeing, hearing, moving, touching. And I go through in that order, top to bottom, (laughs) seeing, hearing, body moving through space, feet touching the ground to help me remember the order. And as you go, you will, it's not that we want to like tune in to seeing and tune out everything else. It's more like a a facet that you're letting come to the foreground. You're letting seeing be in the foreground. Everything else can be in the background, but you don't have to not hear while seeing is happening. He actually might find that pretty hard to do. So it's not, it's not, we're not trying to do that. So noticing that seeing is happening, that kind of is the the main piece. The other things can be in the background. Then you let hearing kind of come to the foreground and and let that be in the foreground for a little while. And then movement and then feet touching the ground. So um, we'll do this for about 25 minutes and come back at 2.30, and then we'll take a few minutes to, um, to just see how that was, to, to see what you discovered in this. So again, I would like to encourage a more um, normal pace walking. Take a walk around the neighborhood. You don't have to do back and forth walking with this kind of practice. And this will support you in the kind of more ordinary walking that you'll do in daily life. 
Okay, and then we'll take, uh, we'll just, I want you to, to explore it first. So um, we'll, we'll take, I'll take questions and comments after you've played with it. So come back around 2.30 and I'll see you then. <laughs>